Hi, everybody. I'm Danielle Yet from the Critical Faith team. We're taking a break from our usual episode format for a few weeks to bring you a very special series of interviews about worldview topics and the studies that go on here at ICS. A little while ago, ICS junior member Grace Carhart sat down with our senior members and asked them to share their perspectives on four themes, wonder, heartbreak, hope, and worldview. Each episode highlights these themes in turn. This week, Grace will present her interviews on the first theme of wonder. So without further ado, enjoy. You are stuck on a desert island with one of three people. David Hume, Augustine, or Jean-Paul Sartre. Who do you pick? Of those three? Of those oh, three. Augustine. He can, he, he, can, he can get my Latin really into shape. <laughs> Why can it be Camus? Can I hang out with Camus? <laughs> Probably Augustine. I don't know. Yeah, it would have to be, I think. Um, yeah. I'd pick Augustine. Um, God bless him, but he's responsible for a heck of a lot that's gone wrong in theology. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, Augustine. I cannot. Um, Sartre, I, I just, it would seem like a real downer on the <laughs> desert island. It would be like, you know, even worse. On being on the desert island. <laughs> like, <laughs> existentialism, we're like, with no hope. So you're stuck on an island. Who do you pick as your companion? Sarcha? Augustine? Hume? Alright, I admit that this question has nothing to do with this podcast, but it's interesting, right? It makes you think, who would I pick? Who would you pick? Evidentially, these four faculty members at the Institute for Christian Studies would pick Augustine. No surprise there. And why not? He seems to have been a pretty important guy. Desert islands, dead church fathers, and ridiculous questions. These are just a sampling of the topic matters that we are going to talk about in this podcast. This is the first episode in a special four-part series of Critical Faith, the ICS podcast sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics. For this series, I have sat down with the four main professors at ICS to chat about academia, personal experience, and religious life. What we're looking for in this series is a sort of practicum of life knowledge for the process of wayfinding. How do we end up where we want to in life? 
How do we know where we want to end up? What are the things that trip us, that surprise us, that delight us along the way? Our first conversation, the one that you'll listen into on this episode, was about wonder. What does it mean to wonder? What do we wonder at in our lives? Does Christianity cause experiences of wonder or take them away? To start off the conversation, I asked senior member Rebecca Smick to bring a poem to read that meditated on the theme of wonder. So the poem that I um, chose is part of a poem, actually. That's Rebecca, one of the senior members, that is, faculty members, here at ICS. I am the senior member in the philosophy of art and culture. That's what I teach. Uh, I come at it from the point of view of sort of the history of the critical literature of art. Okay, back to her poem. The poem is by Auden, W.H. Auden, and it's just the preface to A Sea and the Mirror, uh, which he wrote in the early 40s after he moved to North America from England during the war. So he was quite intentional that it would extend um, Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, and it picks up from where the play leaves off, which where there is a, a, an epilogue where Prospero turns to the audience. Prospero is the main character in The Tempest, and he turns to the audience and makes a plea looking for their response to, to what the play has done and accomplished. Auden takes that, he, he feels that Shakespeare was, that this was an open-ended project and that Shakespeare would have approved, shall we say, if uh, for other artists to kind of take up this theme. If you were wondering, Auden published this poem in 1944, 300 years after Shakespeare wrote The Tempest. So he intended it as a statement uh, about his understanding of what poetry accomplishes or doesn't accomplish. And he also was interested at the time around the notion of a Christian of a Christian art, what that would mean. So in any case, he sets it up as fundamentally about, and particularly you can see that in this preface, about the limitations of art. Um, so he says, he actually says, I'll just read a little line, I am attempting something, which something which in a way is absurd to show in a work of art the limitations of art. And so that's his, that's his intention. So I think it's a good moment to read the poem. So this is the preface to The Sea and the Mirror. The aged catch their breath, for the nonchalant couple go waltzing across the tightrope as if there were no death or hope of falling down. The wounded cry as the clown doubles his meaning, and oh, how the dear little children laugh when the drums roll and the lovely lady is sawn in half. Oh, what authority gives existence its surprise? Science is happy to answer that the ghosts who haunt our lives are handy with mirrors and wire, that song and sugar and fire, courage and come-hither eyes have a genius for taking pains. But how does one think up a habit? Our wonder, our terror remains. Art opens the fishiest eye to the flesh and the devil, who heat the chamber of temptation where heroes roar and die. We are wet with sympathy now. Thanks for the evening. But how shall we satisfy when we meet between shall I and I will the lion's mouth whose hunger no metaphors can fill? Well, 
Who in his own backyard has not opened his heart to the smiling secret he cannot quote? Which goes to show that the bard was sober when he wrote that this world of fat we love is unsubstantial stuff. All the rest is silence on the other side of the wall, and the silence ripeness, and the ripeness all. So the, the line in there that refers to wonder comes after he makes a, a description, well, after he raises a question about the things that we can and cannot do as artists. We can make these spectacles, you know, such as happens at the circus, but what, as he says, what authority gives existence its surprise? And, and that is a notion of wonder, that we live in a world where our sheer existence has more than meets the eye, things that make us wonder, uh, and he raises it again when he says that our wonder and terror do not go away. They, they remain, you know, even, even in the midst of our artistic attempts, uh, wonder and, and uh, terror. So I'll, I'll just un, you know, deconstruct here what uh, the history of wonder and terror so in Western philosophy, wonder is associated with our urge to philosophize, and that comes from Aristotle's Metaphysics, where he says that wonder is what you know first leads philosophers to philosophy. I think in the critical literature of art, and also some degree dependent on Aristotle's poetics, the combination of wonder and terror refers to religious awe, that that which cannot be explained that extra, the surprise that, that comes with existence, you know, our, our, you know the, the, shall we say, the mundanity of, you know, everyday life, and then these things that seem to be outside that mundane world, and things that can't be explained, that are bigger than we are, that, that might invoke worship in us, that create a kind of terrified response to the sheer magnitude uh, and lack of our ability to comprehend. And, and that's what he's raising uh, here, when he talks about science can explain and, and, and explain the, you know, the slights of hand that kind of create wonder, but despite all that, this kind of wonder and terror remain. So even, I think you could say, he carries on and, and recognizes that art can produce sympathy. Art can open the fishiest eye to the flesh and the devil who heat the chamber of temptation where heroes roar and die. We're full of sympathy now, our eyes are wet. Um, we can say thanks for the evening, that was enjoyable. But how, you know, how shall we have any satisfaction when we're faced with something that metaphors, as he says, can uh, cannot fill the hunger, the lion's mouth who's hungry? A metaphor cannot attempt to capture that notion. And he places it within a sort of an ethical conundrum between the shall I and the I will, where one is compelled shall I do something, but one takes it to heart and, and commits um, to the I will, and that these things are not capturable. So, so he is sort of suggesting here what he said was his purpose, which was to, to write about, to have art that attempts to write about uh, what its own limitations are. And then in his final little stanza, he recognizes that this, he takes up what's called the inexpressibility theme, the inexpressibility topos, and in this notion of silence. So silence, we can't find words that are able to express these things, so there's one moment of silence, 
there's the death, there's the silence of death, beyond which there is silence, which we, we cannot even comprehend. And yet at the same time, that silence is rich with uh, religious meaning, with fullness, with something uh, beyond death. And again, the bard, he says, Shakespeare himself was, was cognizant of this, uh, you know, in his working out of his own Ars Poetica uh, in The Tempest. Yeah, so to me, this poem around this this notion of wonder and uh, wonder in its religious capacity, wonder as something that, you know, that is that is part of human life. I mean, he's very committed, you know, so aware of the necessity of of art to kind of tackle the subject matter in whatever mode it has available to us. It's you know very much an existential approach. Uh, a this-worldly approach to the whole problem you know, of religion in our lives. How do we deal with the fact that there is a surprise that comes with existence, as Rebecca says? How can we begin to understand the idea that wonder and terror are fundamentally linked, and that art, even the best art, the art of W.H. Auden and Shakespeare is limited in its ability to get around things. To get a little deeper into these questions, I asked the faculty to walk me through their earliest experience of wonder. Now, this is a bit of a loaded question, as the human memory is notoriously fickle. Still, the things that we remember as striking, particularly from our childhood, can say a lot about what it means to wonder. Maybe they offer a clue as to how our own existence, even in its most mundane form, can be surprising. First up is Ron Kuypers. So right now, uh, the quickest summary is to say that I wear three hats at ICS. So I'm provost, director of the CPRSE, and associate professor. I well, I so I understand wonder to be uh, a kind of distancing from your ordinary experience and, and making it thematic and, and actually wondering that it occurs at all. And I had something like this as a very young child, and it's kind of freaky. It still freaks me out. But I had this idea that my waking life was an illusion. And to the extent where I was making Lego presents for my mother, because I thought maybe I will wake up and never see her again or something like that. So I don't know if that's wonder. But that is a certain capacity to look upon your everyday existence and not take it for granted and to sort of see it as something to wonder about. Yeah, I mean, uh, that would probably be, that's the first thing that popped into my head when you asked that question. <laughs> so that's a lovely question. Second here is Nick Ansel, the senior member in theology at ICS. And there's a few things that come to mind, but I think there's one that's really strong. So I grew up in a village in the, in the UK, and it was built on a Roman road. So it's this very straight road that goes through it. And I remember very vividly standing by the side of the road and watching a cement mixer truck driving down the road. The thing is, I, I remember the moment of seeing this, this truck driving down, and unlike the other trucks, it was like the cement mixer thing in the back was turning as well and being transfixed and I wasn't a kid who was like really into trucks in general and all that kind of stuff but this was something different and it's one of the experiences of a cement mixer truck now can sometimes transport me back to that space and time you know 
different things can do that for you. A certain aroma can take you back. But the Cement Mr. track uh, does that for me still. And I feel like I'm about, you know, three or four or something like that. And there was a sense of, I would say, a sense of wonder. Now, there's different kinds of wonder. So I wonder why... Da, 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 da. It's like you can be puzzled by something. Or the experience of wonder that is in the face of mystery that isn't a puzzle, precisely. True mystery is one that you can't resolve it. You go deeper into it. I think that this was an encounter with mystery for me. And I think I've thought about what was it about that that so captivated me. And I think it was trucks normally just sort of drive straight on. And yet there's this other process that's moving in a different direction. And I think I got this sense that it was saying something about the world. And there are these processes that you can see that are normal kind of procedures and so forth that happen. But there's also something else going on. It's sort of connected with that sense that I think I already had with the world. That it's not what you see is what you get. There's this other process that's going on concurrently, as it were. And I think I knew that inside. And I could never articulate that for myself. And finally I saw something which corresponded to something I knew inside. And I, and I was able to get in touch with what was inside. It's what I call the tea leaf effect. You know, someone that reads tea leaves. I think um, they see something in the TVs. I think they already see something inside. They already sense something. But they need a screen to project what they see in order to be able to see it. You need to bring this to the surface. So you need something external. And tea leaves can give you just enough to project from inside to the outside. You find a screen and then you can visualize what you can't otherwise see quite so i think my seeing this cement truck allowed me to vividly as it were get in touch with this deep awareness that i miss kind of mystical awareness that there's something else going on in the world beyond what we are normally fixated on yeah i've been trying to think that's bob sweetman I hold the HMN Runner chair in the history of philosophy, and so philosophy's history and historiography is my primary uh, teaching responsibility. Um, I have an administrative responsibility as well, and that is as academic dean. Bob is the fourth and last faculty member you'll be hearing from on these podcasts. Uh, I'm 62, so there's, you know, I can go back a certain ways, but <laughs> there's a lot that gets forgotten. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just not really sure what my first experience was, but let me just say some of my earliest experiences around wonder were, uh, were always experiences in which I realized that what I had in front of me was way more and way more complicated than I had assumed when I first encountered phenomenon x so i mean one example that i can give from my early 20s is when i first moved to toronto i had lived uh my adolescence and pre-adolescence in grand rapids michigan and it was a, a rust belt midwestern american city you know a, a car city and it was also a city that had a significant uh, minor racial minority population 
and one in which segregation was really um, not demanded, but was in fact a fact of people's lives. So, um, you know, schools were either white or they were black. There was some attempt, this was the age of busing, so there was some attempt to uh, engineer socially interracial contact, but because it was coercive, rather than something that just came up, it caused more tension and more racial tension in the city than it helped to resolve. You know, the hope was is that if kids grow up with each other, they become friends, and you know, and that has a kind of natural effect. Uh, so, okay, so that was my whole experience of a very segregated uh, environment um, in which there were very, very few interracial friendships, uh, even fewer interracial marriages and and so on. Uh, so then when I moved to Toronto, one of the first neighborhoods I lived in was around Bathurst and Harvard, and there's a gigantic technical high school. So, uh, you know, the kids who uh, were from working class families where there weren't books in the houses and so on and so forth. What was amazing to me is that, you know, it was Toronto, so there was every race you know the whole rainbow of of human of human skin colors, and there were interracial friendships everywhere. So this is the late seventies. Uh, I first moved to Toronto, and there are all these high school kids that are, you know, hand in hand because they're lovers, or they're, you know, they're joshing around together and so on. And I mean, my eyes just about popped out of my head because that was so utterly beyond my experience, beyond my experience of what should be. And I was left kind of gobsmacked. When I thought about it, I thought, isn't this amazing? <laughs> and um, I think that initial res early response to Toronto has sort of stuck with me ever since. So here we have several quite different experiences. Ron talked about feeling uncertain about his own existence Nick talked about watching cement mixers driving up and down the road he lived on. And Bob talked about moving to a new city, our city, Toronto, where the social norms differed from the place he'd grown up in. And yet, despite their variance, all of these experiences required the same sort of captivation with normal life, of just waking up and wondering, of standing beside a road and wondering. So maybe wonder is just something that we do, something that is a part of growing up and realizing that the world is just fundamentally big. My second question for the faculty members got into this a little bit. We wanted to know if they thought that growing up, leaving behind those moments of childhood, made it harder to experience wonder. I think it can be. I mean, I think we can deaden ourselves to that kind of sense of wonder. It, the, the philosophical question, why is there something instead of nothing, is really a question about wonder. I think it's wondering and not simply taking for granted existence, but wondering, you know, why is there something instead of nothing. I think is the most basic way of putting that. I think it can be awakened again. I don't think everybody has to take philosophy courses to keep their wonder awakened, but a philosopher I'm teaching right now, Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, does see the 20th century Western European worldview as of something that's been deadened to wonder. And he thinks that's a spiritual impoverishment. He says mankind must awaken to wonder. I think that people who are called into philosophy have just ha just have a tick in their brain that makes them do this in a way ordinary people might not do this. Um, I'll bike home from work or, you know, and, and then I'll wonder, how do I actually know the way? 
not in a, like there's an obvious empirical answer to that question, but it's actually like what is all in place underneath the experience so that you never question when you have to turn left and when you have to re- turn right, and that once you've learned the way, you, you can do it again. And then you actually wonder about that, not because you want a, a scientific answer to the question, but because you want to be amazed by your ability to do that. And that's what I love about Wittgenstein, because he is the kind of philosopher, at least in my opinion, if you read him correctly, who tries to put you into that position where you go, you know, it's like that moment where um, you're not just trying to answer an intellectual question, you're actually trying to uh, let yourself be amazed by something, the kinds of creatures we are, what we're capable of doing. When I think about language and the human ability to communicate through language and do things through language, children learning language, it's almost impossible not to be amazed by uh, just the mystery of how that actually happens and everything that must be in place for it to happen. The as an adult thing is interesting because it does come easier to children. And it's, it's terribly important as we get older and as we say, quote unquote, grow up, that you keep younger versions of yourself alive. And you take them up into who you are now. You don't get stuck in them. That's immaturity. But to have them alive. Um, and if we all did that, we didn't lose touch with our sensitivities as children. That's good when that, when that happens. So to reconnect. There's so many children's stories are written. They have this sense of they're written to children. And the message to children is the adults don't understand this stuff. So that's one way to keep alive to wonder um there's different kinds of wonder and there are people who are really quite enamored with philosophy as you know maybe philosophy is the kind of the wisdom that we all need for our lives i'm not sold on this at all aristotle will talk about philosophy beginning in wonder but all that wonder is for aristotle is a puzzle which which gets you going and you can solve it and wonder gets left behind if you want to probe you know, Christians thinking about this, one way to sharpen up, bring things to the surface. Well, when you're talking about wonder, do you think God experiences wonder? Because it may be that there's a person who they might think, well, there is no wonder for God because God understands everything. So it's only our finitude that really generates wonder. But for God, of course, there wouldn't be any. Or, does the person say, yeah, God delights in wonder? That's one way to bring out, if you want to push someone, what kind of wonder are we talking about? Because those two kinds of wonder are really opposed to each other. And, you know, it might be nice to think, oh, we're all into wonder. But if, you know, you have someone who just wants to revivify a process that's all about understanding bigger and bigger and bigger problems. That's quite different from someone who is talking about experiencing the world deeply and profoundly to cultivate an appreciation for that and how that can help us find our way. That versus the dream of reason, one way of pursuing wonder can shut us down to the other way. Maybe the word that is useful here is cynicism. 
It seems like Ron and Nick have said that we can close ourselves off to experiences of wonder in adulthood, we can become cynical, but that we don't have to. But how do we avoid that process? How can we keep in ourselves that instinct that the world is really, really big? How do we continue to find surprise in our existence? As a Christian institution, ICS deals with a lot of questions of faith and identity. We wanted to integrate some of these questions into these interviews, so I posed a question to the senior members. Does being a Christian make you more open to experiences of wonder? Or has it made wonder more difficult to experience? Yeah, that's a good question. What I would say is that what I was taught about God was was put in summary formulae. Summary formulae are always dangerous because it seems like they say it all, but they really don't. They're they're just fingers that are pointing. So of course, uh, you know, the sovereignty of God. This was you know, God is sovereign. God is king. God is beyond, and and so on and so forth. Now, at its best, that points at you know the more than you can than you can really get into your head, or even into your imagination, or your I don't know most capacious uh, ability to grab onto reality. You know that God is just beyond this. So there's you know there's no telling when it when it comes to God, right? So as an expectation. So sovereignty can point in the direction of the excess that is the reality of God. And that, of course, I mean, mystery and excess go together. And wonder is a proper response to the mysterious presence of what is excessive. So, I mean, at least in principle, my formation as a, as a Christian believer, you know, is to open me up to uh, wonder and miracle, life before the face of God. But because summary language uh, has this illusion attached to it that it is comprehensive, that it contains the reality it names, along with that formation came a sense that, well, no, 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 these are the undoubted truths in a sense that, in other words, you can comprehend and resolve mystery in something like intellectual light. I mean, that was never stated, but there was kind of that feeling, which acts against recognizing excess, the presence of mystery, and one's uh, natural response, which is, whoa, you know. I think my presumption is that that my Christian outlook would not give, you know, I think, I think what I've just described cuts across humanity. Um, I think everyone... Everyone invariably experiences wonder around what life means, what it means as we progress along uh, its path, its journey. Um, so I would say that you know, in that, in those moments of wonder, and I, you know, maybe we can, as a Christian, I would, uh, as one raised in, the, in, a, in a Protestant tradition where notions of common grace, for example, were kind of everyday language, I suppose. Um, yeah, I think that's where a notion of common grace becomes very helpful. You know, and philosophizing, in a sense, is in being compelled to this kind of wonder is, you know, something I think is open to all. So I'm not sure that I would say that, you know, having a Christian perspective uh, increases my wonder. I suppose 
insofar as I understand my Christian commitments to be governed by love and by compassion for people, I suppose then, then that would affect, you know, how I, how I envision this journey that people take. But I don't, I, I think the wonder piece itself, uh, I don't think that it's becomes peculiar to my Christian outlook. Now that's an interesting question. Um, when you are raised a Christian from birth, at least in my, like how I experience it, you're first taught it in a kind of a catechetical sort of dogmatic way where they're, they're just these truths you swallow down, um, along with everything else. Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't, it, cause I like to think that sometimes, cause I went to Christian schools from grade one through 12 and, you know, did my undergraduate at Christian college and, to my graduate studies at ICS, you know, I had, you know, in, within that, I had a couple of years at the University of Alberta and then a postdoc at the University of Toronto. So, you know, it's not like I never experienced an educational context outside of that. But growing up in the Christian Reformed community in Edmonton, or just growing up with the Bible and with Bible lessons and Bible stories as something that shapes your imagination, I think we kind of can discount the ways that that can awaken us to things that maybe. Uh, you wouldn't be awakened to if that wasn't what you had growing up. I'm not saying it gives you a, an edge or an advantage or anything like that, but I think it does give you something unique. But at the same time, it can become quite dogmatic and deadening. And I, I did experience that as well in my adolescence and early 20s. And um, a lot of my intellectual journey has been figuring out, sifting this heritage and, and, and what is life-giving and what is death-dealing in it and all that kind of thing. So... You know, my answer to your question is that it's both probably, but I think the mistake a lot of people make is to go, is to throw the baby out with the bathwater and go, okay, this is all a bunch of bunk, or this was all damaging, or this was all stultifying, and then try to completely shift to something different. People I know who've done that are usually still very much in the grip of the thing they they pretend to have thrown away. And I think it's, you can have a much more um, freeing relationship with your heritage if you actually try to take up a quarrel with it, and then also try to discover what, what in fact in it has been a blessing. So I, if I think right now about the 20th century sort of Western, uh, you know, post-industrial capitalist mentality, there's a world where, you know, we assume that we have some form of rational or technological mastery or control over it. We treat creation instrumentally as just stuff to be used to satisfy our desires, like um, there's no sense of wonder at all. Nothing that will stop you short or stop you in your tracks. And, you know, I think we really need something like that. And I think actually religious outlooks do have something like that to offer people, um, which I think is valuable. But it's also complex and strange and foreign, the way I experience wonder at the top of the mountain after a grueling hike, when my spirit sort of seems to leave my body and see the world from another level. Life affects wonder. Life is wonder. Life, in its mundanity, all the way to its most bizarre and extravagant moments, presents us with things that are wonderful 
and that we will spend years wondering about. Faith is inextricably tied up with these experiences. Faith hands us cards that we only learn to play decades later. God, mystery, and subtlety. These, it seems, are just a few of the things that the word wonder encapsulates. The Auden poem that Rebecca read at the beginning of this episode is, I think, a beautiful way of expressing wonder, because Auden claims with the poem itself that art cannot fully get around things. Art is, like rationality, like memory, like any other avenue of experience, limited. It falls short, and it's frustrating. But it's also beautiful and wonderful. So what do you think? How do you experience wonder? Do you think that childhood is more conducive to experiences of wonder, or does maturity seem to offer a better set of tools for articulating those experiences? How does technology affect wonder? How does faith? To respond to this podcast, or to ask any other questions about our project of wayfinding, you can tweet at the Institute for Christian Studies, or email us at gcarhart at icscanada.edu. For more information about ICS, the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, or the Wayfinding Project, please visit icscanada.edu. Please also consider leaving us a review on iTunes, just to help more people find out about and keep up with us. 